This is the message given by Pastor James Lim during the morning worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for April 16, 2023. The title of the message is Working Out Your Salvation. Good morning. It is always a privilege and a pleasure to stand before you and open God's Word and, and to, um, to preach from it. If you would turn in your Bibles with me, we continue in our morning series through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible or you have a different translation, you can follow along in the bulletin or the slides behind me. Just to give you a little bit of context, over the past several weeks, the Apostle Paul is reminding and encouraging the Philippian church to uh, not be divided, but to be united um, and to serve one another and to not only take their own interests, but also uh, have the interests of others in mind as they serve uh, one another, as they seek to live uh, as the people of God in the church of Jesus Christ. And he grounds that unity he grounds that, that humble service in the humble service of Christ, uh, who, um, who was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Um, uh, and he humbles himself in obedience, uh, even unto death, death on a cross. And it is grounded in that humble service of Christ that he now then calls uh, the Philippian church then to live in light of, of that truth. So here now then, the reading of God's holy word beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he add his blessing to it this morning. Throughout the ages, Christians have always wondered uh, which is more important, uh, God's sovereignty uh, in, in, in every affair, God's sovereignty over everything, over all, right? Or human responsibility, Right? Our responsibility to obey, to repent, to trust, to believe, and to do good works. Right? 
Um, Some Christians uh, pit them against each other as if because God is sovereign, we don't have any responsibility to do anything. Uh, And so the Christian life becomes overly passive. We just do and we we don't really have to work that hard. We don't have to really do too much because God is going to to take care of it all. Um, and then there's people who pit human responsibility over God's sovereignty, as if, as if uh, God can't overcome our sin or the obstacles that we put in the, w- in, our, in the way so that we don't have to obey, we don't have to follow what God commands. Um, but the scriptures are very clear you know, the question that people ask, you know, which is, which, is, uh, which is most important, God's sovereignty or human responsibility? Or which is, you know, if we have to pit human responsibility versus um, God's sovereignty, which wins out? And, and the answer the Bible gives is yes. Is that it's not, it's, it's not an either or, but it's a both and. I think uh, somebody, uh, an, an old... Um, an old saint uh, would say, yeah, it's, it's like the wings of a bird. You know, you can't choose one over the other. They both uh, help us fly in the Christian life, that God is sovereign and we are responsible um, to him to obey and to live for him. And, uh, and sometimes what we, what we get wrong is the relationship between the two. And that's what our passage is all about this morning. Uh, here, God's sovereignty and our responsibility are not mutually exclusive, but they are entirely and totally compatible with each other. Here we see the compatibility and the relationship of God's sovereignty to our human responsibility. Here this morning, we see how God works in us so that we can joyfully work for him as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let me just repeat that. God works in us so that we can joyfully work for him as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So I want us to look at two two parts here. God's work in us, verses 12 and 13, and our work for God, verses 14 to 18. So let's look at our passage. Uh, first, I want us to see how God works in us and through us for his good pleasure. But before I do that, let me give you a little more context here. Earlier in chapter 2, Paul wants uh, uh, the, the Philippian church to be humble, and then he, uh, he roots their hum- humble service in Christ. And so he begins then with, then he begins here with, our responsibility to obey him because of what Christ has done. You have the indicative of what Christ has done and now the imperative. But in the midst of that imperative, you know, that you sh- he says, you ought to, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, continue to do so even while in my presence as well as in my absence. Um, and so he's giving us now the practical implications of Christ's humble obedience uh, that grounds our obedience. And so he begins then with our responsibility. And what does that responsibility entail? Our obedience. Work out your own salvation. Look at the rest of verse 12. 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now here we have a command that again presupposes human responsibility. God is calling us to obey. God is calling us to work out our salvation. And and so what does that mean? The the verb that Paul uses here to work out uh, has the idea of working something to the the very end. Working something uh, so that it's all done to its completion. Um, people in the, ancient, in, in, in the ancient Greek times used this word to describe um, working out uh, a plot of land so that it produces all that it can, right? All the fruit that the, the land can sustain. Or they would apply it to working in a mine to dig out all the gold, all the treasure that's already there right, till it's all gone, or working to finish a math problem, right, it's for all you students there, you know, what Paul is saying here is to work out the salvation that we already have to its very end, right, and it, it kind of points us back to Paul's earlier, earlier words in chapter one, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, and so, so here this, this completion is not only grounded in what God does for us who started it, but as we work for God completing it. And, and, and all of that then is grounded uh, in, in, in God's sovereignty. And we are called to do it with fear and trembling, with reverence and awe. And here's the point. We ought to do it not taking it for granted, not doing it lightly, not being overly passive in our Christian life. I think this is part of the pitfall of, of being reformed, of having a strong doctrine of predestination and of God's sovereignty. Sometimes we take God's sovereignty to the point where we don't have to do anything. And that's true when it comes to God's initial saving grace, right? It is by grace you have been saved. You can, we can never do anything to earn God's salvation, to earn God's love and favor. We can never be good enough. And I'll touch on that in a little bit. But once God has initiated his salvation by grace in our lives, then we have been changed and transformed and enabled then now to respond and to live for God. And so that's the picture we have here, that that the salvation that we have that God has worked in us from the beginning, now he's calling us to work it out. In other words, be as fruitful with the, with the land in which God is calling us to bear fruit in the Christian life. We are to dig as deep as we can to extract all the gold that is in the ground, all the treasure that's hidden in the salvation that God has given to us, or working out the, 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 I guess you could say the math equation of, of salvation to the very end until Jesus returns. And the goal, the completion of that, that work of salvation that God is, is working in us is to be conformed fully, completely, comprehensively, perfectly conformed into the image of Jesus Christ so that we become completely like him in every way. 
And, and so it's a work. And so in that sense, God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility are hand in hand. So how does God's sovereignty then work in our responsibility to act? Look at verse 13. He grounds, Paul grounds our responsibility in obedience to God's sovereign work in us. Look at verse 10. Here's why you can obey. Here's why you can work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Do you see that? We work out our salvation because God has already worked salvation in us. We can only work because God first works in us. It's, 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 like, it's like the command to love throughout the scriptures. You, you know what they are. Uh, to love, we, we love because he first loved us, 1 John four nineteen. Or it's like our choosing God or God, our choosing of Christ. Jesus put it this way. You did not choose me, but I chose you to bear much fruit, John fifteen sixteen. We work because it is God who works in us. And how does he do that? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, whatever work we do for God, it's because God has already kind of enabled us, empowered us, moved us, changed us, um, so that then we can do what he is respond to the work he's already doing within us. The inner renovation, the inner transformation, being born again, giving a new heart with new affections, with a new will to do new obedience, to do that which is pleasing to him that once was not pleasing to us, Um, completely changing us that we who are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ so that now we may live to please him. And again, he's expanding on that idea uh, that he gave earlier in chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in us, that, what is that work? The new life, the grace, the new obedience, the, the, the will to... to uh, to, to be made alive again and to die to our sin, to die to those things that we once did that was in opposition to God, that was at enmity with God. And now he's going to bring that work to completion until the day of Christ. And Paul puts it this way in other passages. He says in Colossians 1.29, He says, for this I toil, right? For this I work hard, struggling with all his energy. Whose energy? God's energy that he powerfully works in me. There's this new, there's this new creation power. There's this gospel empowerment uh, that God places in us and it it empowers us to live for him. Uh, Paul says it this way in Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the, contra- on the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. 
Or when Paul says um, uh, in, 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 uh, in, other, in another passage, he said, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, when we, when we die to who we, were, who we once were, uh, all of our old affections, our old enslavements, our old addictions, uh, we're no longer enslaved to them. We're free, and now we can, we can walk in newness of life. We can turn from those sins. Um, and that's what the Lord is calling us to remember here. This has so many applications for us in our Christian life. It means that when we work hard to obey the Lord, it's not so much us working hard for the Lord, it's, God, it's the Lord working hard in us. When we overcome the spiritual inertia of our own laziness and sin, it's not us pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps, but God sovereignly picking us up in the Christian life, to both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Whatever growth or progress we make in the Christian life, it's not so much us overcoming our sin, but it's God overcoming them in us and through us. This is how sanctification works, the, the, the doctrine of growing in our Christian life and growing in our Christ-likeness, turning from our sin and becoming more and more like Jesus. This is how it works out practically in relationship to God's sovereignty and our responsibility, that God's grace works in us to want and to will and to actually do that which is pleasing in God's sight so that everything we do is because God is working that grace in us. It takes away all our spiritual pride because apart from God's saving and sanctifying grace, working deep in our hearts every step of the way, we would never do it. I am the vine, Jesus said. I am the vine, you are the branches. Right? Uh, He who lives in me and I live in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. So even, even the greatest strides in our Christian life, breaking those addictions to sin, we can never boast. Because it's never really us who do it, but God doing it in us. And so we can't work for God unless and until God's work of his grace uh, works in us. And so that brothers and sisters, friends, this is just a reminder that we cannot be passive in the Christian life. We have to be active because God is active in our lives. And so if we're lazy, if we're passive, if we think we're going to get to obey God at some point in the future, but we don't have to now or today, I think we're, we're thwarting God's intentions of grace in our lives. That we are not working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're actually working against it. And we're quenching the spirit. And we're pushing back the grace uh, that we ought to embrace that enables us to turn from our sin and to follow Jesus, to humble ourselves and to serve one another, uh, to, to not be spiritually prideful, but to hum, be humble 
and the more humble we are, the greater God's grace in our hearts will be. Are you, have you been making any progress in your Christian life? Like if you look back at the last five weeks, five months, five years, and for maybe for some of you, five decades, if you look back and you see where you came from, have you made progress? Or have you absolutely made absolutely no progress? This is a challenge to all of you. Are you working out your own salvation? I, I like the way that Paul, the Apostle Paul puts that word in there. Your own salvation, right? Because we are so prone to try and work out other people's salvation, telling people, other people what to do. Uh, but Paul makes it a point to say, your own salvation. How are you living? Right? This message, you know, maybe in, in your mind right now you're thinking, oh, so-and-so needs to hear that message. Well, how about you? I think we're really good at saying, oh, you know, they need to do this. They need to hear that. Oh, I wish they heard this. But we're the ones who need to hear this. You're the ones who need to hear this. So what does then working out our salvation look like practically? That's what the Apostle Paul then goes on to show us. And this brings us to my second point. When God works in us, then we can joyfully work for God. Look at verse 14. We work out our salvation in four very important ways. What are they? First, we must work to be blameless and beloved children of God. Right? This means not blaming God or other people for the difficulties of following Jesus. Uh, that's what verse 14 is about, right? Instead of being, he, he goes on to say, uh, that you may be blameless. And the reason why you may be blameless is because we're not blaming other people. And what does that look like if we're blaming other people? We're doing all, we're, we're grumbling and we're questioning, we're disputing, right? Look at what he says there. Do all things without grumbling, without questioning, uh, disputing, right? In other words, don't blame other people. And Paul uses the same Greek words here that it are used to translate the character of the, the, the Israelites in the desert, in the wilderness desert in, the, in, in Exodus, right? And you remember that. It's like God freed them from slavery in Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and God is providing for them all that they need, uh, manna from heaven, um, and, and water as they need it, and miraculously, uh, their clothes are, are, is not wearing out. Their shoes are not wearing out. God is providing everything for them, and yet they are grumbling and murmuring and complaining and disputing and questioning God through, through questioning and disputing Moses' leadership. And so Paul might be referring here to the internal divisions and, and, and difficulties that the Philippian church uh, may be encountering, and he's telling them, don't grumble. Don't be like the Hebrew, the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, follow the word of God and follow your leaders as they follow the word of God. And so this is, again, this is why Paul began with pointing them to the, the humble mind of Christ. Because it's, it's at the heart of it all, it's pride and self-entitlement that causes us to grumble and dispute in our hearts, is it not? We grumble and complain about things 
only because we think we deserve more or we deserve better. That's, that's a, a, a place of pride. And so we complain like spoiled, entitled children. We question our leaders and teachers, not because we want to learn, but because we want to show how smarter we are, how better we are. We all know what this is like. Pride says we know better than everyone else, so we're just going to show it by, by uh, uh, arguing with you, arguing against their teaching, against their decisions, against their leadership. We ask questions, again, not to learn, but to fight. Why? Because we are prideful. And so that's why we have to humble ourselves the way that Jesus humbled himself. Not only do we have to remember that we're to be blameless and beloved children of God, uh, I'm sorry, blameless, but we have to be beloved children of God. Look at verse 15. So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. When we don't grumble or question, it presupposes in our heart that we're content. It means that we're trusting God as our Heavenly Father because He provides for our every need. And so we won't complain and we won't argue. See, this is the whole point of Jesus' teaching in, in, in Luke 12. This, the, that God provides for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And so if God so clothes them and provides for them, how much more then will he then provide for you, his children? Uh, Jesus says, uh, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, right? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How are we going to live, right? They're anxious about it because they don't know, they can't trust God. They don't trust God for, for providing all their needs. And so, but God's children ought to. And why? Because Jesus says, your father knows you need them. And so he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. You do what God has called you to do, and God will do what he will do for you. And we'll, we will know how beloved we are as his children, right? And, and this, Paul understood this so well. Uh, if only we could understand it, that, that when, we, when we are tempted to question whether God loves us, what did Paul say in, in the book of Romans? He says, this is, how, this is how we know that God loves us, that he who did not spare his one and only son, his most beloved son, his only son, his most precious son, how he, will he then not give us all good things? And, and it's rooted in knowing who we are as his children. It, this is the difference between being anxious and being content and not grumbling is that we know we have, we, we know that we are God's children. This is a mentality of of sonship, a mentality of being of knowing that, that he's our father and we are his children, rather than having an orphan mentality. As if God doesn't exist or that God doesn't care, and so we have to take care of number one. And that's the difference. That's that's why it's important not to grumble or to complain. Sometimes we 
We think, oh, what harm is it if I grumble or complain? Well, it, it, spiritually, it's, it, you're digging deeper into an orphan mentality that's going to become more and more your identity and how you live. And also, it's going to, I think it's going to drag your fellow brothers and sisters down. Because you're not encouraging them, but you're dragging them down with you in that orphan mentality. Rather than encouraging them by, by acknowledging that, you know what? God has provided for me so much. How, how can I not praise him? Yeah, he's answered my every prayer. Prayer. He's, given, he's answered and given my every, my every need. Not in the way that I had hoped for, but he's wiser than me. He's, he's, he's more loving. And he knows what's good for me. Um, and, and he's calling us to, to know what he's already given to us as, as his children so that we won't grumble or complain, but we will be blameless uh, and innocent as children. And then, not only will we be blameless and beloved, but he calls us to be biblical. I'm sorry, to, bright, to shine brightly uh, with the glory of God in the darkness of this world. Look at what he says there. That we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, do you see what Paul's saying? That we will live so differently and distinctly that we're going to stick out and shine with the glory of God and his goodness. This is an extension of Jesus' words to be salt and light in the world, right? And the, if you're going to live a Christian life, it is, it is by its very nature going to be very different. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb and people are going to try to, to kind of, you know, uh, hammer you in so that you fit. That's really what persecution is. We're going against the flow uh, the, and, and not being conformed into the, the patterns of this world. And this, so this has three implications for us in our Christian life and in our lives in general. First, we shine bright as we stand straight according to God's word in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Right, if, we're going, if we follow Jesus, we're going to stick out and, and if, when, we, when our measuring stick is straight, everyone else is going to see that their measuring stick is crooked and they're not going to like it. So when our culture calls something good and yet we call it bad, um, we're going to get flack for it. And so we shouldn't be surprised when people hate us or persecute us. And so my question here, just, just to dig a little deeper for you guys, is um, are you really sticking out in our culture? Are you shining brightly in the darkness of our culture? Or do you try to blend in? Do you try not to stick out? So in many ways, you're either quiet about how you live and what you believe or maybe you're actually buying into it hook, line, and sinker uh, and following the, the crooked and twisted ways of this generation. That which God calls evil, you're beginning to call good. And that what is uh, good, 
God's word says is evil and you're calling it good? Just some questions, some things to think about. Secondly, another application implication is that we must love those around us by testifying to the saving grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when we shine as lights in the world, it's only because Jesus, the light of the world, is already in us. And so in as much as we live in Christ and express that and manifest that in our lives, then we will shine with the light of Jesus as the light of the world. That we are all faint reflections of his light. And so we're really like mirrors. The more blemish we have... Right? The more we are being more and more conformed into the, into the, the ways of the world, um, we're, the reflectivity of our lives are going to be less and less. And so I think that's why the Apostle Paul puts here, uh, without blemish, because the cleaner the mirror is, the brighter it will reflect any light. And if we keep our eyes, our hearts fixed upon the Jesus, and, and as the light of the world, then we are going to shine bright the light that, he em- that emanates from him in the darkness of this world. Wives, the, and we do this in many different ways. Wives do this when they win their husbands. So even if, if some of them don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, 1 Peter 3, 1. Husbands do this as they love their wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her as they do it for their wives. Parents do this when they love their children as the Father loves, loves us and sometimes even disciplines us because if we don't discipline our children, it means we don't really care. But when we lovingly discipline them, it's because we love them and we want the best for them. We want to teach them the way that they go. Um, Or Christians, brothers and sisters, we do this for one another as we lay down our lives in humble service for one another. And so we do all the one another's that the scriptures teach us to encourage one another, to love one another, to uh, bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another. To welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, right? To even correct and rebuke one another. All of those one another's, we, we do it for one another as we humbly lay down our lives for them. And we do all of this as we hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, he says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain, let me just give uh, one more um, apologetic. This is just something to, for, for those of us who, for those of you who, are, who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ or maybe uh, are questioning and, and wondering of the claims of Christ, um, this idea of, of, of being straight in a, in a twisted and crooked generation presupposes a certain moral order that presupposes a God who defines good and evil what is straight uh, and narrow, morally speaking, or crooked and and twisted. Uh, And and I love, uh, I think C.S. Lewis puts this so well uh, in in when he was wrestling with these same questions. He says this, 
uh, when he was questioning, you know, why he was questioning why God would let injustice in the world go rampant. He says this, if a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? And for many years, I simply refused to listen to the Christian answers to this question because I kept on feeling Whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world uh, was not made by any intelligent power? Aren't all arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But then that threw me back into another difficulty, right? What he's saying is he's thinking, oh, this this is such a messed up world. And then he's wondering like, you know, how can God exist in a messed up world? And he's thinking, well, well, if the world is messed up, how do I know it's messed up, right? And so he goes, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. Do you see? Do you see? So all of this, you know, when you look at the world, you say it's all messed up, it's twisted, it's crooked, there's so much evil and injustice going on. That is a pointer to the existence of God who defines what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. And so I just want to just put that out there for you to consider. It's like, why do you... Why do you hold the views that you hold? Uh, And if you do hold them, maybe you're holding them inconsistently. And so you're presupposing a God who defines what's good and evil in order then for you to call the world uh, messed up. So let me me close here. Let me close here. Uh, All of this comes together now as, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is already working in us to will and to work that which is pleasing in his sight for his good pleasure. And the language that Paul closes here at the end in verse 17 and 18, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Um, and then he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. See, Paul, the Apostle Paul realizes that he is, is uh, working out his salvation that was grounded in Christ's salvation of him. That Christ poured out his life as a drink offering, as a sacrifice for his faith, so that he would be saved from his sins as he died on the cross for him. 
and rose again after three days to give him new life. That now, now he's working out the salvation that God had, that Christ had wrought for him in the gospel and it's being played out in his own life so that they then can work out their salvation. And, and in the midst of laying down their lives for those whom God loves, for the, those whom he lo- they love, they too are being poured out like a drink offering. In persecution, in suffering, uh, and, and, um, and as they shine brightly in a dark and, and fallen world. And therefore, then, they can rejoice. Because that's how you know that God is working out that salvation in your life. Because you are, you are manifesting that grace in the very way that you live. So you ought to then also be glad and rejoice. Because God is working in you as you work for him. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because God is working in you. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful, this wonderful truth that you give to us. Of your sovereignty and our responsibility. That you work in us and through us so that we might then work uh, for you. Lord, help us not to be passive in our Christian lives, but to be active, because you are active. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.